from the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University, this is Writer's Talk. I'm Doug Dangler. Today is our second part of the interview with Richard Shields, an OSU professor of history at Newark, who will talk to us about history writing and the controversy surrounding the Newark Earthworks. Also, Nate Barone, a student at OSU, will talk to Rachel Miller, a cast member for Second City, which will perform in Columbus on March 5th, about how she got into comedy, comedy secrets, and timing. So, stay tuned. Richard Shields, tell me about the kinds of teaching you do about the Earthworks. You've done a little bit of it here, but what do you tell your students about so that they can focus their writing on, say, the Earthworks, and how do you get them to write about these big mounds and say, here's how you make it interesting, kids? I teach a variety of courses. Every single quarter, I teach a one-credit-hour class, uh, which I call Civic Engagement with the Newark Earthworks, and students are expected to learn about them and to somehow find a way to engage the public. And so that might take the form of writing a letter to the city council uh, or to some public official framing an argument, uh, that kind of Do they get tired of your students bothering them with these letters every so often? They don't complain to me. Okay, they they have a big rush of of complaint letters. Well, actually, that brings me to a point that the earthworks in Newark have a somewhat contentious background. They do. And uh, tell me about that, especially because I'm especially interested in what happens when academic writing runs into public conflict. Sure. Well, here's why they're contentious. Uh, they belong to the Ohio Historical Society, but the octagon, at least, is leased to a private country club. And it's a sort of strange historical circumstance that led to that. Uh, but Mound Builders Country Club has leased this site for 100 years now. 100 years this last spring. Uh, And that means that, for the most part, it's not publicly accessible. Uh, I've been teaching in Newark for 35 years, and I would often, on the first day of class, ask my students, have you been there? And they would look around, and I would see these dull eyes, and finally someone would say, oh, you mean the country club? And the answer would be, the few in the class whose parents were members had been there, and the rest had not. Uh, I believe for a very long time that this needs to be a public site. Uh, And I have pushed for public access. I've done that in person. I've done that in op-ed columns. I've done that in interviews. Uh, It's at that point, I suppose, that the contestation becomes clear. Uh, The folks who belong to the country club, of course, are good people. Uh, who pay money to belong to a club and play golf and have dinner in this lovely clubhouse. Uh, They perceive that it's to their credit that the earthworks are still there. They will often tell us uh, that they're the ones who preserve the mounds. Mm -hmm. Fascinating, because as a matter of fact, they have a different story, a different narrative about these earthworks. Uh, The narrative I tell, what I know to be true, Uh, is that before there was a country club, politicians put a levy on the ballot in 1893. The good people of Licking County voted to raise their own taxes to buy that site uh, in order to preserve it. And it was some 20 years later uh, when a country club uh, was allowed to build a golf course and, and begin leasing the site. We tell different narratives. 
Mm -hmm. uh, we impart different meaning, I suppose. Uh, it seems clear to me that this is a Native American site, that this is a Native American sacred site. We bring Native people here every chance we get. We're now working with the Shawnee, the Eastern Shawnee tribe in Oklahoma and with the Miami tribe here in Ohio and others. Uh, we celebrate the native origin of what we consider a sacred site. Uh, and I've heard stories in town that they were built by uh, the CCC in the 1930s. There was a country club mm. manager who liked to say Franklin Roosevelt built these mounds. A uh, rather different story. Uh, and it makes a difference mm -hmm. uh, in terms of whether these mounds should be shared with the world, I suppose. Uh, well, that's also an interesting, different kind of writing because in, when you're a history professor, you're trained in a specific kind of writing. That's right. Um, this is a very different kind of writing. It, it has different um, modes of communication, right? right? People say, okay, if I'm going to write an op-ed page, it's got to have this, it's got to have sure. that. And then that gets you very much into the whole thing about what can we know, how can we know it. It does. And it seems like there's... There, there are two views of history. One is, well, we don't really know everything, so we can't really say this or that. And there's the others that said, yeah, but I can show you a picture from the 1800s that right. had this <laughs> exactly. mounded before you know it was sure. built by the sure. uh, the Works Project. Sure. So, the the difficulties of working through that must be uh, very hard as a writer to say, well, wait a minute, you know, before you make these claims, you're not following through on the chain of evidence or things like that. So, I don't find it difficult. Um, well, I mean, to, to watch, I, I guess. Might okay, be. sure, sure. The archaeologists approach this rather differently than do the Native Americans. Uh, Mormons approach this differently. There are stories in the Book of Mormon that they like to link to sites like this. Mm -hmm. There are a variety of narratives, a variety of perspectives which I find absolutely fascinating. Uh, and part of what I want to do as an educator is, is make people aware of the variety of interpretations and make the case that the interpretation we speak is the best interpretation, but that's very different than claiming to have a definitive chronicle mm -hmm. of what happened when and who did what. How does that go over with, with, with classes, say with students who are from Newark, to say well, this is the best but okay. narrative, but they've grown up with a different narrative. Right. And, uh, or they may have grown up with a different narrative, and then it comes, sure. that fight comes in to sort of an unexpected place, a history class in, right. in a college, to say that's not you know, what I was told, you're calling into question, you know, the folklore that I've grown oh, up with, I'm the sure. stories that I've grown up with, my narrative. That's a fascinating question because I don't think of students who have responded strongly or negatively mm -hmm. to that. We've done surveys in the community to try to find out what people who've lived there for generations think about the place. And the first thing we discover is that they believe these were burial mounds. Mm -hmm. And when we ask them to use a word or two to define uh, this site, they're likely to pick a term like haunted or scary. Even though a lot of them hadn't um, been there. Even though they've, uh, many of them have been there, that's true. Uh, and we're speaking uh, a different story that says, well, there were burials, they were way over in this part of the area, the rest of this was something else. Mm -hmm. But for a long, long time, 
people in central Ohio were taught that these were Indian mounds, and it's going to take a while to persuade them otherwise. But there were burial mounds. There, and it, there, there, there were burial time. mounds elsewhere. That's not what these were. The, right. I don't find people reacting strongly or negatively to that. I simply find them continuing to repeat the old myth. Uh, and you wonder how to catch their attention more than mm -hmm. anything else. Well, you know, in, in reading about this, I went, of course, uh, to Wikipedia, among other All right, places. Sure. Among other places. All right. And uh, one of the things that I was interested about is that there's a really sort of brief statement about, you know, th these do have a contentious background. All right. And uh, th it says to me that there are all these things working on it. There are different forms of writing, like you said, making all these different narratives. Sure. And I'm curious about the history, I mean, the, the future of that, you know, what is that going to be for history um, and in, in a related way you've got things like the history channel all right sure so that used to be sort of you would see maybe a PBS documentary or about sure. when I was young you might see something like that but now it's all opened up it's all very different the information is being disseminated in wildly different ways that's right and what happens to your profession when that happens how do you deal with that how do you respond to that well certainly you lose control Mm -hmm. uh, and you simply have to find ways to speak your narrative better uh, mm -hmm. and to speak it more effectively to reach larger numbers of people. This summer, Glenn Beck spent an hour talking about the Newark Earthworks on national television. Mm. Uh, and he said some things that we believe and some things that we don't believe at all. I mean, he, he repeated some of the old myths for instance, the notion that the Great Circle is a fort. Uh, there's no reason to think it was a fort, but people thought that for a long, long time. The notion that somehow the measurements at the Newark Earthworks correspond to the measurements at the pyramids, that's just factually wrong. Uh, how does one counter Glenn Beck? Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, I mean, he's got an audience. He's got a reach that we can't possibly touch. Uh, so you look for ways <laughs> to reach more people, to catch their attention, uh, but I'm, I'm afraid you're asking me a question that we wrestle with and we haven't yet resolved. Well, that's the kind that I like to, to get, of you course, know, the, sure. the, the, the difficult one. The, but you're working on an interactive website, that's right, right, that you've got interpretive materials, that you're making these moves towards downloading to iPod, cell that's phones, right. this kind of stuff. Tell me about that and the impetus behind that. What started you on that road, sort of, Glenn let Beck? Me, let me give, <laughs> actually, let me give credit to a group of people in the School of Architecture at the University of Cincinnati. And the man at the head of this effort, I'm not making this up, is named John Hancock. Uh, an architectural historian from the University of Cincinnati who spent many years studying ancient Greece and Rome before he discovered Ohio Earthworks. And he likes to say, I had no idea, but he's devoted himself for the last 20 years to discovering and writing about Ohio Earthworks. And John has created CIRHAS, the Center for the Electronic Reconstruction of Historical and Archaeological Sites. They have done a couple of CDs, one all about ancient Newark, Ohio. Uh, and we are now partnering with Sir Haas, with John and his team, to create downloadable materials for what we will call an ancient Ohio trail. Uh, the goal is to lure people here from Europe and Asia and around the North American continent uh, and to take them around the state 
allowing them to download on the car radio or on the iPod or on the cell phone layer upon layer of interpretive material as well as directions as how do you get to the next place. Mm -hmm. We have incredible earthworks in Newark. We have incredible earthworks outside of Lebanon, Ohio at Fort Ancient. We have incredible earthworks in Chillicothe and of course we have Serpent Mound. Those are the four anchors of an ancient Ohio Trail. Let me also speak very quickly that we're working very hard at winning world heritage status from the United Nations. Uh, just this past week, uh, Gordon Gee and lots of other people in Ohio wrote to the Department of Interior to support uh, our chances for being winning that status. Uh, Americans don't pay a lot of attention to world heritage, but Europeans do <laughs> and Asians do. And we're being told by the Department of Interior that if we can win that, and I think we will in a few years' time, we'll begin drawing significant numbers of people from Europe and Asia to Ohio to see these ancient sites. Those are pieces of our strategy for doing better than Glenn Beck at reaching the rest of the world with what we think uh, the Newark Earthworks and other earthworks in Ohio were all about. With what you're referring to as interpretive materials. Exactly. I think that's an interesting turn of phrase as opposed to, you know, a, a historical you bet. materials because uh, it, it's, it's interesting that you're putting it out there because it lets you, you know, make the statement that, you know, this is what this is, it's interpretive. On the other hand, um, do you risk running into problems because you're not saying this is factual? Sure. I mean, I, every time I stand in front of an audience, which I do regularly, and do my spiel, somebody demands that I give them a determinative answer. And I think, I think this is part of the learning process. We're teaching about ancient America. We're teaching about earthworks. We're also teaching about how do we know, what can we know, how do we understand the past, uh, and I think we have to be straight. I think we have to admit our limitations and talk about meaningful interpretation. Right. So that's your philosophy background there coming right, into, sure. into, into historical you bet. background because it's, uh, it's suggesting all these different interpretations and, okay. and ideas about what history could be, whereas you know, Glenn Beck probably didn't necessarily make the same argument but he didn't make those caveats that's right <laughs> but that's a different show anyway richard shields professor of history at the ohio state newark uh thank you very much you bet for thank you for here. having me here on march 5th second city will bring its fair and unbalanced tour to the southern theater more information can be found on the writers talk website at www.writerstalk.org cast member rachel miller spent five and a half years in amsterdam with the improv group boom chicago before she joined Second City, a background that OSU student and guest interviewer Nate Verone, himself an aspiring comedian, would be likely pleased to duplicate. So here they are. How did you get into comedy? I was out of college. I was working for the Chicago Symphony Orchestra in their offices, and I went to see a Second City show, and my friend that I went with made me pinky swear that I would take a class. Oh, awesome. So you kind of dragged into it a bit. A little bit. I, you know, I grew up listening to as much as I could. Like, my dad was a big influence in giving us Bill Cosby records and George Carlin and the Smothers Brothers and Spike Jones and his band. That's a group from the 40s, if you are not familiar with them. 
I think they're from the 40s, maybe late 30s. Uh, but we were just constantly listening to stuff. So I didn't know it, but I certainly was getting an education in comedy and how to tell stories and comedic timing. Uh, I'd stay up late with him and watch Saturday Night Live. and uh, But pursued other interests and then kind of came around to it later when a friend kind of pointed out that that's kind of who I was, that my sense of humor was, you know, that's who I was to our group of friends was kind of, trying to make them laugh and trying to get them entertained. So I took a class and it all led to uh, an occupation. So are you a musician? Yes. I majored in music at Indiana University and I uh, have a degree in oboe performance of all things. And then I have a master's degree in arts management, which is how I ended up at the Chicago Symphony. There's a a correlation that I found between uh, music and comedy. I think Conan O'Brien was the person to say that he's he's always uh, very curious why a lot of comedians are musicians as well, and there's a definitely like correlation there. Yeah, I think so too. I, I would I would totally agree with that. I think it's you know you're used to being in an ensemble. There's a timing. There's a rhythm to things. There's a melody to comedy. Yeah, absolutely. There's like a build up and kind of release it kind of thing. I always talk with my dad about this since he's a musician. Second City has a, uh, a huge multitude of, of great alumni, and which of them kind of inspire you uh, the most? Oh, man. You know, there are so many. I you know, I just, uh, Stephen Colbert, I think, is super inspiring because he's such a nice guy, you know, and I think that matters. You know, he's he not only is so prolific and he writes, but he's just a nice, accessible person. Uh, he, uh, you know, a lot of the folks on his staff have come through Second City. Tina Fey is fantastic because I think she's shown just how funny women can be while still being smart, you know, while writing super smart comedy and yeah. not just catering, you know, taking the the low-hanging fruit and, you know, just, I think she's super smart and she's made it. Yeah. She's set the the bar very high for women coming up you know, that there's definitely a smart mark that can be reached. Uh, and then, and then like folks that are deeper back, like Peter Boyle, you know, who was, uh, the monster in young Frankenstein and, you know, Alan Arkin comes up through and Alan Alda, Joan Rivers, you know, like just that you're, you're absolutely right. But that list of alumni is super deep. And I think Bonnie Hunt to me is also someone that I find to be particularly inspiring because not only is she, is she a writer and a performer, but she directs and she definitely like tries to do everything she can. Have you had any like really great teachers in Chicago that have uh, inspired you? Like, I don't know if you were there as far back as like Del Close, but. Oh yeah. I studied with Del actually. I really, I really enjoyed him. He definitely was surly and just fantastically odd, but he truly believed in the art of improvisation and that you needed to serve the piece. The piece didn't serve you, you know, and that's like anytime somebody would, you know, make a quick joke that deflated the scene. You know how it is. We've all been there where yeah, you, yeah. you go for the quick laugh, but it, it you can't go anywhere after that or it's harder Then you can work harder than if you're simply patient and you, you serve the piece, not like because when you go for that quick laugh, you're looking to serve yourself. You know, you're looking like, oh, I'll get this laugh. And then, yay, oh, they laughed at me. And then very quickly, you're suddenly like, uh-oh, now I'm in quicksand because we're sinking. 
So I think he was very adamant that you, as a performer, should try to serve the piece yeah. instead of having it serve you. But then you have someone as fantastic as uh, Mick Napier, Susan Messing, Rebecca Stone, who are all teachers at the Annoyance Theater, who are very big on once you learn to serve the piece, then work to let the person the, the piece serve you. Like that there can be a balance between the two. Like you can go for those last as long as you are still protecting the piece. And I hope that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, so absolutely. Those folks at the annoyance theater are, are really great about kind of giving you the the tools to have it both ways. Like have your cake and eat it too. I know a lot of people in Chicago like kinda tour around the theaters like Improv Olympic and Annoyance. Uh have you you've trained there as well as Second City? I trained at all three theaters in Chicago, and I think it's the combination of those places that, uh, as well as a theater, I went and performed at a place called Boom Chicago that's in Amsterdam, and I think the more influences you can get, the better, because there's just, there's not one way of doing comedy. There's not one way of doing anything, and when you have a lot of different influences, it just, uh, it leads to a richer experience. So for me, at least, I really appreciate it. And I, that often means that you run into teachers that are very anti another school. So you kind of have to learn how to create the balance for yourself. But I, I mean, I, w- I would tell any student, I would tell any student to go to all of them in Chicago. So you just mentioned uh, Boom Chicago. Can you mm-hmm. talk about that a bit? Yeah, that is a theater that uh, was started by three guys from Evanston, which is a suburb of Chicago. And uh, they started that, I believe, in 1993. They were fresh out of college. They wanted to start their own theater. They kind of wanted to do it in Europe somewhere where it'd be a brand new thing. And they found Amsterdam while they were touring and found that Dutch people, their English is excellent. So that made it possible. Like for, they could do a show in front of people and the people would understand you know, the, they wouldn't have to translate or anything like that. Uh, and also, there wasn't anything like this yet. So they really were the only game in town for a while. And so they really, from the ground up, built their own, you know, show. They started out in the back of a bar and then eventually were able to get their own space. And then years later, kind of moved into a, a theater, which they fully renovated. And that's where they're at now. And they employ uh, American actors to do a full, about a two-hour two show, sorry, a two-act show that's about two hours long. That's all, uh, it's a kind of a 50-50 blend of sketch and improv, trying to keep it very topical. Um, as Americans living in Europe, they kind of are the voice of what people are thinking. Kind of, I was there during 9-11, and Europeans oh, wow. kind of turned to that type of theater to kind of, you know, what are we thinking? What are Americans thinking? Like, how is it okay to laugh at this completely awful thing? Like, how is what's a way to put it in? Per- comedy is always a way to put reality in perspective. Yeah, absolutely. So that theater is still there. It's going strong. Uh, it's a fantastic experience. Aside from getting to work full-time as an actor, you get to live in Europe. So you kind of get to see what America looks like from the outside. 
uh, and you get to travel. And you were there for five and a half years, correct? Yes. Could you take us through like a typical week there? Like what's the writing process like? What are rehearsals like? So Boom Chicago, you're working full time. There's a complement of actors. There's not one group assigned to only do one show. So everybody, I'm going to say this in a jumbled order, so I'll do my best. So there are shows in home space. There's a Best of Boom Chicago, which is kind of an archive show. And then there's always a new show running. Depending on which show, there might be four or five actors in that show. But everybody knows every part. So that depending on who's in on a given night, everybody knows a particular part in a scene. It's a very avant-garde way of doing a show where you might write a part, but everybody ends up playing that part. So I'm not the only one that's ever going to be in that role. So it's a very collaborative process, you'd say? Very collaborative process. New York and L.A. have continually growing improv scene with theaters like the Upright Citizens Brigade. Why did you choose Chicago over these cities who would want to pursue it? Well, a lot of people actually kind of start in Chicago and then move to New York or L.A. So they often like kind of get their training in Chicago and then move from there. Um, but now they're both growing so much that tons of people don't move to Chicago. They just are either already in LA or already in New York or, you know, go from college and just decide to go to LA because there's such a great scene or all of those things. I think for me, I decided to move back to Chicago because I knew moving back to the United States of America, I had a lot of friends in Chicago and it was a city that with the cost of living, I could probably fairly quickly be making a living as an actor and improviser. I wasn't going to have to get a job, you know, waitressing or temping or something like yeah. that. Like I could probably fish another enough work together to make a living. So that's that's why I moved back to Chicago. Uh, it doesn't mean I won't eventually go to New York or L.A., but that's where I am now. But I think it's it's definitely there was a time where Chicago kind of was it as a mecca. Like the most people were there, the most places to study. And that, that may not be the case anymore because now New York has three great theaters that I can think of off the top of my head. L.A. has three great theaters slash training centers to study at. So I think it's kind of great that there are more options available now. Doing comedy so much, do you ever get burnt out on it? And how do you get back into the swing of things? I think you do. You can run that risk of getting a little burned out, like especially doing the same scenes over and over again. For me, at least, when I start to feel like, oh, I'm tired or, oh, this again, A, that doesn't happen very often. So knock on wood, that's great. Because <laughs> I think if it ever started to happen too much, that would be the light bulb to me that it was time to move on. But when it does, you know, you know, maybe I just didn't sleep very well the night before, I'm hungover, you know, whatever the reason, I think I just remind myself how lucky I am to get to do this. Like, it's ridiculous. Like, I get to play old cranky in front of an audience and they laugh at it. Or I'm getting to play a part that Tina Fey wrote that, like, all the laughs are built in. All I have to do, she made my job very easy. All I have to do is deliver it. So I remind myself that there are tons of people that wish they were getting to do what I did. And that in the end, it's just, it's like getting paid to go to recess every day. It's hard work, but it's fun. What are your plans for the future? Uh, do you plan to pursue a career in film or television, or would you like to do that? For me, I think I'm going to keep pursuing live theater and writing. And inclusive in live theater, uh, I'd love to do some dramatic stuff as well. And you know what? That is, I would not turn down television or movies if they came knocking. But I think for me, what I would actively pursue is probably writing opportunities and live theater opportunities. And teaching. I love teaching. So... 
I definitely want to keep doing that as well. Is there any advice you have any for any aspiring improvisers like myself? Oh man, just keep keep trying, keep making opportunities for yourself. Like go watch people's show. Like when you support other people's shows, they'll support your shows. And that's like, it really is this big, it's like the inside of a, a washing machine, like you just need it to keep going, like the, or like the inside of a dryer, like you just need it to all keep tumbling, like, because that'll also help you, like when you watch a show, you'll get excited, you'll go home, you'll get ideas, you'll write a little bit. Don't give up, like just, you know, as best you can, like keep finding funny and keep believing that you always have something to learn. Like there's never a point at which you shouldn't be taking a class or watching a show or thinking that you've got it all because there is never a time that any of us knows everything we are supposed to know. Thanks so much, Rachel. You've been listening to Writer's Talk from the Ohio State University Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing. For more from my guests, OSU Professor Richard Shields and March 5th Second City performer Rachel Miller, visit www.writerstalk.org. Writer's Talk is a co-production of the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing and the Ohio Channel. You can learn more about Writer's Talk at facebook.com slash writerstalk. And if you'd like to know more about social media like Facebook, register for the Digital Media in a Social World Conference April 1st and 2nd at The Ohio State University. It's www.dmsw.osu.edu. Following OSU President Gordon Gee's opening of the conference, we'll have past Wired and current Boing Boing editor Mark Frauenfelder giving the keynote and discussing how you can find meaning in a throwaway world by creating your own projects. Then, he'll give a workshop on how you can create your own cigar box guitar just like the one he played on the Colbert Report. We'll have presentations from dozens of OSU and regional folks interested in digital media and social media, including Doral Chenoweth, the producer of the Ted Williams Golden Voice viral video, and the OSU students behind the Ohio Union Don't Stop Believing video. If you're thinking about getting into social media, this is the conference to do it. Join me next week for Linda Hogan, a 2011 speaker for the OSU President and Provost Diversity Lecture Series, and a review by OSU student Kate Satchi of Read This Next, 500 of the best books you'll ever read. Until then, this is Doug Dangler saying, keep writing.